Good morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's reading comes from Psalm chapter 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Everybody looks awake, which is good. We hope you all had a very merry Christmas. And uh, maybe got a little bit of extra sleep this morning. We are all here for the one and only 1030 service. If you have small children, you did not get any extra sleep. So uh, good morning, nonetheless. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about worship. And the sermon this morning is entitled, Worthy of Worship. And so that's what we're going to be looking at for the next few moments. Now, when I say the word worship to you, a lot of things might come to mind. You know, certainly there's the Webster's def Dictionary definition of worship, but there's also cultural definitions of worship. And in our, a lot of our circles in the subculture of Christianity, we have a lot of definitions about the word worship. Let me show you one example of how culture defines a word that doesn't mean this at all, but we use it culturally uh, in a completely different way. And that is bad. When I say the word bad to you, a couple, like a hundred years ago, for example, uh, you would immediately think, oh, that just means it's bad. It's not good. But now, a phenomenon has happened a few years ago, probably 20 or so, and bad can actually mean it's actually very good. Okay, for example, that's one bad car, as opposed to that's one bad car. See, the emphasis and the context of how I say that word changes it completely. And I think for a lot of us, we do the exact same thing with the word worship. One last example that I think is pretty funny. Uh, so, sometimes my wife sends me on errands, not often, but sometimes. She'll look me in the eyes and she'll say, honey, I just need one thing, just one thing from you. I say, okay, honey, whatever you need, I, I got you, I got you. And she'll say, honey, we need diapers. I need diapers. Then, like a good husband, I go to the store, Southgate Publix to be specific, and I start making my way to the produce, and then zigzagging up and down the aisles. And there's a specific aisle that if you know that Publix, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where, where every man comes to the end of the aisle, looks down, and there is a glowing beacon at the end of the aisle, and that's where the stakes are. 
That is exactly where the stakes are. And I lose my mission altogether, and I start making my way down the aisle, and I scan the stakes, and I say, that T-bone, that's it. This is it. This is it. My wife is going to be so thrilled to death when I get home. So I make my way home. I bring her the T-bone, thinking I've done my duty. And what does she do? What does she say? Where are the diapers? Right? She wanted diapers, and I brought her something completely different. And I think sometimes when we talk about worship, God is asking us for something very specific, and we tend to come back with T-bone steaks. So the exhortation is, uh, at the end of this uh, passage, should wake us up a little bit. God is asking us for something very specific, and we should try to bring it to him. So this morning, I have a couple objectives. One is that we define worship. What is worship? How do we worship? Why do we worship? And then we're going to see this over three parts, I believe, this morning. First, the first few verses, the invitation, then the posture, and then the exhortation, which are all aiming at our main idea, which is this. We are redeemed to ascribe ultimate value to Jesus with all that we are because he alone is worthy. Say it one more time. We are redeemed to ascribe ultimate value to Jesus with all that we are because he alone is worthy. Before we begin, let's pray and ask God to be with our time. Father in heaven, we come before you as a people in desperate need of you. We are helpless without you, and we need you now in these moments to give us ears to hear and eyes to see you more clearly so that we may bring you the worship that you deserve. Be with us now. Be with the words that come out of my mouth. Take away anything that's distracting, and may you be more beautiful this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's jump in with the invitation. See here in verse 1 of Psalm 95, it says, Oh, come, let us sing. Let us make joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Oh, come, the invitation begins, and immediately asks us to do something. It says, sing. But not to only sing, but to sing in a certain way. To sing joyfully. To make joyful noise. I thought this was interesting. The word noise here is, uh, is talking about singing or loud sound. For a lot of us in the room, we fall into the category of loud sound uh, that isn't as beautiful as someone who is trained to sing in these different ways. So I thought that was encouraging. Make a loud sound. Get loud. The other thing, this is also priestly temple language. They would also play instruments. It's also included in this word for noise. So singing, loud sound, possibly with an instrument, more than likely with your voice. And usually, that's where we stop. Wow, worship was great, wasn't it? Singing, and we stop. When I ask you, how was the worship, we usually immediately go to the bookends around the sermon, don't we? Or we say, oh, the worship is great at that church, or the worship is this or that or the other. And here, it definitely is involved singing, but maybe it's a little bit more. Then the people after this are instructed to Come into his presence. And the presence of God at this time was unapproachable. But in certain moments, in certain ways, and for certain people. And people were more than likely approaching, and the psalm is being sung, the festival of booths. 
and are, they're told to come into his presence with something specific, which is thanksgiving. So we're told to sing joyfully, come into his presence with thanksgiving. And then again, it says, and make a joyful noise with songs of praise. Now, what are these things telling us? They're telling us that there is an emotional response to something, towards something. See, the emotions are engaged, the hands are engaged, the mouth is engaged. We're playing an instrument, we're singing a song, we're excited here. But what are we excited by? You see in verse 1 and verse 2 that there is a proper object of our worship. We're invited to engage, sing, shout, play, write, enter, make, directed to a specific object. Now, who is this specific object? And we see in verse 1 that he is the Lord. The word here is Yahweh. He is Yahweh. And Yahweh would be immediately recognized by the reader or singer as the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. Yahweh, the God who formed Israel and led them out of Egypt, led them out of slavery with a mighty hand. And then he also describes this object as the rock of our salvation, which, yeah, Salvation is solid, great. But I think here he's alluding to the water that flowed from the rock in Israel's wilderness wanderings after God had freed the people from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. And we'll say a little bit more about this later on in the passage. So we see he's Yahweh, and we see he's the rock of our salvation. This is the object of our singing, of our praising, of our rejoicing. And then we also see it is implied here our worship must be directed to God, otherwise it is misdirected, misguided, and false. But why direct our worship towards this object? Why is Yahweh, the rock of our salvation, to be the object? And watch what the writer does in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, For, for the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. This could almost be reversed, but I think it's this way intentionally. All of our singing, this emotional explosion of rejoicing, is aimed at God and rooted in this for. For is another way of saying because, right? For, because, why are we singing? Why are we rejoicing? Here's a list of rational reasons. Why are you rejoicing? Why are you praising? Let me give you the reasons. Let me count them off for you. And then the psalmist, almost rapid fire, lists seven reasons, at least seven reasons, why we should. He says the Lord is a great God, a great king. He's above all the gods. His hands are made the depths. The heights are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. It's almost as if the psalmist is holding up for us this object and saying, hey, look, do you see it? Look, look, turning it, seeing how the light refracts off of it. It's almost like a diamond that we're being invited to behold. And as we see it, as he's turning it, wow, worship begins to happen. We begin to sing. We begin to rejoice. Because the Lord is a great God, and this great God is a king. And he's a king above all gods. And we could almost pause there and just break out in a song and dance. 
But he doesn't stop there. He continues and say, consider God, the king who reigns, who creates. Every nook and cranny is his workmanship. The heights or the unsearchable, he knows, he made. The depths, the unsearchable, he knows, he made. The chaos of the waters that are uncontrollable. Ask anyone who spent any amount of time on a boat out in the middle of water, the waves are uncontrollable. God is in control of them. He created them. He formed them. Therefore, come sing joyfully. Make a joyful noise. This is who God is. See, the more we see the value of something, the greater our holistic response to that thing, that object. A good example of this, my grandfather was a collector of sorts. He had way too many things. I'll put it that way. But at the end of his life, he passed on to my brother, who's, hey, Joseph, uh, my brother and our cousin, comic books. He had these mint condition, first edition comic books, and he passed them on to us. And they were in these crates, and we put them in the closet, and we didn't really think of them much at all. And then a couple years passed. They were collecting dust, and we were, like, cleaning out a closet or something. We're like, I guess we should probably have these things evaluated. We should try and see how much are these comic books actually worth, if anything. I kind of doubt they are. So we took the collection to an appraiser who specialized in these types of antiquities, and he put them through all sorts of tests to evaluate, first, the authenticity, the condition, the date, the series, which edition, on and on and on and on his appraisal went. He was turning it. He was viewing it, looking at it. And then he came back to us, and he revealed the true value of these comic books, and something happened to us oh, wow, those don't belong in the closet. They actually probably belong in a safe or something. Those actually are worth way more than I ever thought they were. Nothing changed about the comics. The only thing that changed was how we viewed the comics, the value we ascribed to the comics. Something changed inside of us, which changed our orbit around the object. Another great example of this is uh, falling in love. They say falling in love changes you. And they are absolutely right. It does. In almost every way. Holistic here. Uh, when I was dating my wife, Taylor, we would go on dates. We would get to know each other. And as we began to get to know each other, the value we saw in each other led us to do all sorts of crazy things. I began writing songs, cutting mixtapes, writing prose, maybe a poem here, maybe a poem there. You know, poems. I began to shower, wear cologne, watch the notebook, play board games. For those of you who know me or have known me for any length of time, you know I hate board games. But it reoriented my orbit. There were things that I would have never done that now I was compelled to do because the value I saw in my wife. Jesus tells a great parable about this. Remember the story of the man who finds treasure, and then he finds it, and he buries it in a field. Then he goes, sells everything he has because of the value he had found, the surpassing value. And a quick aside here, one of the things the Holy Spirit does in worship, the Holy Spirit helps us do this very thing, helps us appraise the surpassing greatness and value of God. He teaches us to rightly assign value, pointing us away from lesser values and making much of Jesus, convicting us of unbelief, 
leading us into worship. The Spirit, in short, inflames our affections towards Christ, who is the ultimate value. Spoiler alert. The greater the value, the greater the holistic response. I like the way uh, Tim Keller says this. He says, when love of the immeasurably great and transcendent God of the universe becomes real to us, the joy should be uncontainable. The joy should be uncontainable. So there's this great invitation to worship here. Number two, the posture of worship. Pick up in verse six. Oh, come, let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The word for worship here in verse 6 is most clearly defined for us. The word most literally means the bowing down, to bow down, to prostrate one's self. And the word carries the idea with it of bowing one's whole self down. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 12. For those of you who have just been through the Romans class, after 11 chapters of of laying down doctrine on doctrine on doctrine on this is who God is. In verse 12, it shifts. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, there it is, worship. You're bowing down in response to this. So we see in verses 1 through 5, the reasons that our emotions are engaged. It's both rational and emotional. It's both. But here we see the will, the desire, the volition is engaged. Most of the time when we think of bowing down or kneeling, we think of a tyrant, of an oppressor coming and forcing, demanding us to bow. But that's not what the psalmist connects this with. The psalmist actually connects this surrender, this bowing with something completely different. And I think he connects it to at least three things. The first, he made us a people. The Lord is our maker. Earlier, he was referring to God as creator, but now I believe he's pivoting and saying, and he's also your maker. He made you a people. The emphasis is on the Lord as the maker. The complete set-apart people are to be set apart to bow down. A people who have been set apart for God, by himself. We didn't do it. We should bow. Number two, he is our God. In verse seven, the great God in verses one through five is said to be our God. Before, he is God. God is. Therefore, we do these things. Now, he is our God. This is possessive, intimate language. We've been brought near because he has come near us. And third, he is our shepherd. We are sheep in desperate need of a shepherd. There are a few classic examples of this in the Old Testament, one of which is in Ezekiel 34, where the so-called shepherds of Israel are just leading people essentially off a cliff. And God, who is protective of his sheep, responds. This is what he says. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, 
that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabitations of the country. I will feed them with good pastures. On the mountain, the heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture, they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And this is beautiful, what he's about to say. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy and I will feed them in justice. God cares for the sheep. God made a people for his own possession because he cares for them intimately like a shepherd. Now what does this tell us about who God is? First of all, it tells us that he's safe. It's safe to bow down to this great God. It is safe. It's safe to prostrate yourself before the shepherd of your soul. He cares for you. And a hallmark of true worship has always been humility. A posture that says, I am completely unworthy, and yet you call me, and you call me by name. I'm far away, and you come near. I'm prone to wander, and yet you come near and keep me in your hand. Gladly I bow, and so joyfully I kneel. And verses 1 through 5 tell us the greatness of God gives us reason to sing, shout, rejoice, praise, ooze gratitude, all that. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that the kindness and care of God gives us every reason to bow. So worship sounds great. What could possibly go wrong? A lot. A lot can go wrong. In fact, it doesn't take uh, long at all in this passage, a bit of whiplash because this is what we should be doing. And then today, if you hear, see Israel's dealing with uh, what we all deal with, which is a struggle to actually live this out in our world. Which brings us to uh, point number three, the exhortation of worship. We'll pick up in verse, second part of verse seven. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. As on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The first time I read this, it was a bit shocking. It almost feels disjointed and disconnected, but I think that it actually is very connected for Israel in this moment and for us this morning. See, there's no neutrality in worship. There's no neutrality. Today, if you hear, today, if you hear, we have heard of the greatness of God, and it demands a response. And watch this. No response is a hardening. A delayed response is a hardening. Refusing to bow down is a hardening. But we live amazingly presumptuously, don't we? Especially this time of year. The presumption is, my dad will start on Monday. You know what I'm saying? 
the gym routine, uh, 2021 is going to be that year. We live under the presumption of time that we have more. I'll get my relationship right with God when blank. Fill in that blank for yourself maybe this morning. And we delay, delay, delay as though we had an abundance of time or we knew how many days we had. And if 2020 proved anything to us is that our days are short. We are here but a little time and our life is a vapor. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But sadly, that's not what the Israelites did. We know because we get to read it in the scriptures. So if we read on in verse 8, they put God to the test. They put him to the proof, though they had seen his work. They asked God, is God really among us? They demanded proof. The whole account of this story is found in Exodus 17. He alluded to this moment earlier when he was calling uh, the object of our worship the rock of our salvation. And here, he's referring to the story. They had just left Egypt. They were in slavery in Egypt. It was not good. They left, and what is one of the first things they did? They were singing. They were so excited. Um, They actually even pledged their allegiance to Yahweh. Great. They're doing great. A few days later, grumbles. The grumbles begin, and they even say to Moses in this section in Exodus 17, it would have been better for us to be back there already, back in slavery, back in the oppression of Egypt. And now they have no water. A circumstance popped up, and they have no water, and they begin to ask God, why did you even rescue us for us to just come into the wilderness and die? So long story short, the Lord tells Moses to take his staff, hit a rock, the rock, geyser town, everybody drinks. And the story goes on and on, and other situations would arise, and at almost every turn, you will see the fractured and rebellious hearts of Israel. And this shows us something important about worship. Although the people had been singing and bowing, they truly hadn't begun seeing and hearing They were still treating the object of their worship essentially like a vending machine. Quarter in, freed from Egypt. Quarter in, water from the rock. Instead of crying out for the benefactor, they once again are crying out for the benefits. I have a three-year-old son, and his love for me is amazingly circumstantial, which is interesting. And uh, he's hungry. He gets hungry all the time. He comes to me says, Dad, give me some food. But the food I want. I want fruit snacks. Jack, give me five minutes. Give me five minutes, son. And what does Jack do? He has a meltdown. An absolute cosmic meltdown. Why? Because in this moment, he isn't thinking rightly about our relationship. If he was, he would recognize that his whole life, we've been providing for him. He can trust me to feed him in five minutes because we've been providing for him his whole life. See, hundreds and hundreds of years later, the religious leaders put Jesus to the same test and proof. They're demanding something of him, and Jesus responds, I love this, in Matthew 16, 4, with two statements that sound a lot like our text this morning. He says, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. 
which we know was his resurrection. So the last, the last section here, again, is very sobering. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Chilling. It is chilling when it's hyperlinked in the book of Hebrews as well. The author in Hebrews says this. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But I exhort one another but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are being saved now. We are being redeemed now. Today, if you hear his voice, do not turn. We all need this. We all need this constant daily grace. Every day. The same notes are being played by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Where he says, many will come to me on a day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do? Didn't we sing? Didn't we even bow? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So how do we enter this rest? Friends, we repent and we believe. And when do we do this? We do this now. We do this today. There isn't more time. Today is all we have. So we know that time just keeps on slipping into the future, and 2020 is gone. It came, it went, and next week it'll be 2021. Today, hear his voice. Listen, believe, and obey. There's a, an example of Israel doing this in Isaiah 1, where they're bringing all kinds of spiritual activity to God, and he says this, which is shocking Stop. Stop. Pause. What does he want? He says in verse 16 of chapter 1, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And then verse 18 is a beautiful but God moment. He says, Come now, let us reason together says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We do all these things, the forms, the rituals, the liturgies, that God desires obedience. Obedience isn't burdensome for the mind that has rightly appraised the value of God has been enraptured at the affection level and our will. We want to do what pleases God, not out of obligation, but out of love. It should result in a humble posture of worship. True worship changes us. We come to him who is worthy of our worship. We come and bow down for he is a good shepherd. We come near and obey because Jesus is yes, our Savior, but he's also our Lord. 
We'll finish up like this. If Israel had reason to worship, we have much more reason to worship. We are invited to worship the king who created all things and with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to the Lord. We rejoice and we sing to him because of who he is. And then we bow down our lives because he is our God and he is our shepherd. It's really impossible to read the psalm without seeing Jesus, isn't it? He is the shepherd described in Ezekiel 34, who has come to care, tend, and save us, the sheep. He is love. He bowed low, kneeling to the will of the Father, pouring out his life in worship, not only in song, but in word, not only in word, but in deed. Then in an act of worship, laid down his life for you and for me. But the grave couldn't hold him, and he's given us a burning proof forevermore which was his resurrection. Jesus Christ alone is worthy of all of your worship, all of your affection, all of your love. In every song we see, sermon preached, the day lived, decision made, every time we show mercy, every time we forgive, every time we do justice, every time we feed the poor, every time we care for a widow, every time we gather here together, he is the object of our worship. Our worship isn't only singing. It is everything. Everything we are doing is worship. So, three questions we asked at the beginning. What is worship? It is ascribing ultimate value to Jesus, resulting in the bowing of your life. Why do we worship? There's a lot of reasons. I just picked two. Because our God reigns and our God saves. How do we worship? We listen and obey, repent and believe. We'll let the old Christmas time hymn close us out. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. For he alone is worthy, Christ the Lord. Let's praise his name forever, Christ the Lord. And we'll give him all the glory, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you overflowing with gratitude for who you are. We're grateful that you exist, that you created everything, and that you made us a people. We're grateful for what you've done we're grateful that you came in the flesh, lived a life we could never live and die in our place so that we could enter what is true rest, a life bowed down to you. You are a kind and caring shepherd. Help us believe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.